When George Mitchell walked the streets of Belfast in the mid-1990s, he was often stopped by strangers who thanked him for what he was doing but warned that he was wasting his time. The former U.S. senator from Maine was in the midst of chairing peace talks that sought to end the deadly sectarian conflict that had been plaguing Northern Ireland. After decades of violence, optimism for a peaceful future was in short supply. But two years after the talks opened, Senator Mitchell announced on April 10th of 1998, Good Friday that year, that an agreement was at hand. Good morning, I'm John Rogan, and this is Fordham Conversations. I recently sat down with Senator Mitchell to talk about the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The interview was part of a program at Fordham Law School marking the anniversary. Senator Mitchell spoke about how the peace talks overcame the bitter strife that left 3,500 dead and countless more with physical and emotional scars. The accord bridged the divide between the nationalists and the unionists. The nationalists, who are primarily Catholic, have long sought unification of Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland, while the mostly Protestant unionists want strong ties with the United Kingdom. The Good Friday Agreement created a government where the two sides share power. The anniversary program at Fordham Law School was a continuation of the school's links to Northern Ireland and the peace process. Former Dean John Fierick was part of President Clinton's trip to Northern Ireland in 1995 that helped lay the groundwork for the peace talks, and he created a conflict resolution program for community leaders in Northern Ireland. Another member of the Fordham Law community, John Connorton, a 1971 graduate, played a central role in calling attention to the conflict by inviting political leaders from Northern Ireland to speak to American audiences. For his efforts, Queen Elizabeth awarded him an honorary CBE, the third highest honor in the British Order of Chivalry. After the agreement was reached, Fordham Law created a summer study abroad program in the region that continues to this day. Fordham Law recognized Senator Mitchell in the fall of 1998 for his work on the peace process, we started our conversation by talking about the award he received. Well, Senator Mitchell, thanks very much for taking the time to be part of Fordham's marking of the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, it was in the fall of 1998, uh, just a few months after the agreement, that you received the Stein Prize at Fordham Law School. So it's great 20 years later that you're involved in our marking the, the anniversary again. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I recall Clearly, the evening that I did receive the Stein Award was one of the highlights at that time of my life, and I've had a continuing relationship with Fordham since then. Uh, John Ferrick persuaded me to uh, serve as a visiting lecturer uh, for a semester, and I enjoyed that very much and have kept in touch with both John and with Fordham since then. And, and now we sit here on April 2nd, 2018, on April 2nd of 1998, uh, you were in the midst of the final stretch of the peace uh, talks. Uh, what were your expectations uh, for how the talks would, would conclude uh, as you sat in Belfast on April 2nd of 98? It was less an expectation than a hope. Uh, I'll go back a couple of months to February of that year. We had had a disastrous series of meetings in Dublin, preceded by an equally disastrous set of meetings in London. And I flew back from uh, Dublin to New York, uh, believing that the process was on the verge of failure. We'd been at it for nearly two years. Uh, there was tremendous acrimony. Uh, although there were nominally ceasefires, they had been broken just after Christmas when a Protestant 
paramilitary leader, a very prominent unionist, uh, Billy Wright, was murdered in prison by a group of Catholic nationalist prisoners. That touched off a series of retaliatory killings uh, that threatened the viability of the talks. And uh, on the flight back from Dublin to New York, uh, I concluded that uh, unless a dramatic change were to occur, the process was doomed to failure. And so I decided to suggest an early, fully binding deadline, a make or break date. And on that flight, I sat down with a pen and paper and drafted a plan for a intensive final two-week period. And I had a goal for each night of the two weeks. By April 2nd, we'd been at it for nearly a week, and we had not reached a single goal. Uh, the goal of the first night we didn't make, we didn't make that, or the goal of the second night, uh, it was extremely difficult. And so while it was very intense, uh, the, the prospects at that time didn't look very good. But I was determined to force it to a vote by the deadline, which originally was uh, uh, Thursday, April 9th on, uh, at midnight. That was the target date. And so a week earlier, uh, it didn't look very good. So what turned it around then? In the last uh, week, uh, I contacted uh, both prime ministers, uh, and they came to Belfast. Uh, it's impossible to recount uh, the f in full detail the complexity of the discussions. And we, we had 10 political parties, two governments, and the chairman. Uh, there were many, many issues. Uh, but suffice it to say that we were able to get it back on track. And we went round the clock the last couple of nights. Uh, President Clinton stayed up all night in the White House <laughs> on the phone constantly. We had sort of an open line. Uh, and uh, we were able to finally pull it together uh, a, just a few minutes before 5 p.m on what was then Friday, April 10th, uh, when I got the last word from the last party, uh, David Trimble, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, then the largest Unionist Party, telephoned me to say they were ready to go. They had been locked in an extremely difficult uh, party caucus all day. They were the last ones to come on board. Uh, I called for an immediate vote. My experience as Senate Majority Leader had taught me when you have the votes, you better vote because something might change for the worse. And so we assembled a few minutes after that, had a round of uh, uh, self-congratulatory comments, uh, and then proceeded, in, in their words, to do the business. Uh, and it was an enormous relief, a sense of uh, uh, great exaltation and uh, exhaustion combined. And now zooming out to the process overall, played out over two years, what would you consider some of the biggest challenges that arose, and how did you navigate those challenges? Well, of course, the fundamental challenge was that uh, after centuries of discord and defeat, violence, and threats, uh, there was a deep and profound mistrust on both sides. 
neither believed the word the other said, uh, neither had any sense of concern or empathy about what the other side felt. Uh, I can sum it up best by describing an incident when President Clinton made his first trip to Northern Ireland uh, at the beginning uh, of the process. Uh, I set up meetings for him uh, with the three major party leaders. And the first one was with uh, Dr. Ian Paisley, who headed the Democratic Unionist Party. The second one was with uh, Jerry Adams, who headed up Sinn Féin, the Nationalist Party. It was very late at night. Uh, President and I had flown overnight the previous night from Washington to London. We had a full schedule in London. The pre President addressed uh, the British Parliament members. And we flew to Northern Ireland. Dr. Paisley walked in. I introduced him to the President. Uh, and without anything more being said, he spoke for 30 minutes nonstop, hardly taking a breath, describing the history of Northern Ireland from the Unionist perspective. And it was a very long litany of all of the wrongs that had been done to them by the Nationalists. There was not a hint or a suggestion of any reciprocal action or any feelings about what the Nationalists might have felt. He said goodbye. In walked Jerry Adams. I introduced him to the President. And he gave 30 minutes of the other perspective. It was the same way. Both very powerful orators, very compelling stories. But there was not a suggestion that there were two sides to the story. It was all one side. And I recall very clearly when they left, uh, President Clinton turned to me. He said, boy, you've got your work cut out for you. <laughs> he said, well, thanks a lot for telling me the obvious. Uh, it was pretty clear by then. And that pretty much summed it up. There, there, there were territorial differences, uh, differences of national identity, religious and ethnic differences. But underlying it all was a deep well of mistrust and what's lost in most of these conflict situations is the importance of economics. There were hard times. And when you have hard times, people are more susceptible to the siren song of violence and extremism. And turning to the agreement itself and how you navigated all of those challenges, um, you know, it, it's been 20 years now in Northern Ireland, and it seems like Almost all disagreements are settled through a political process instead of through violence. How did the agreement make that possible? Well, I think that among the many factors that future historians will judge to be decisive contributors to the agreement was the exhaustion that the public on all sides felt from the 20 years of conflict, harsh, sectarian, bitter, brutal. Uh, the statistics of those who are killed is relatively modest compared to other comparable conflicts. But the statistic that's rarely mentioned is the number of people who were permanently maimed, not killed. There's a document I prepared which acquired some prominence called the Mitchell Principles, uh, setting out 
what the parties had to comply with in order to get into the talks, and it's essentially nonviolent. The last one of which is not congruent with the rest of them, and it has to do with what they call punishment beatings, which were violent beatings imposed upon people who were left permanently maimed and crippled, and there were very large numbers of those people. So there's a lot of fear, anxiety, uh, a, a, a concern about an eruption of violence. On the first day of the negotiations, two years earlier, I had said to the delegates that uh, I did not come with an American peace plan. I said, there's no Clinton plan, there's no Mitchell plan. I said, in fact, when this is over, I'm going back to the United States. It's you who must live with the consequences, so it is you who must own the agreement. And I said, it must be in your words. Two years later, when we drafted the agreement, I made certain that every single word in the agreement, literally every single word, was either spoken or written by someone from Northern Ireland. And when I distributed to them on the last day, on the morning of April 10th, I had a cover memorandum in which I reminded them of that pledge. And I said to them, this is your agreement. And it was a decisive factor, I think, in creating enough trust among them, although very risky and very difficult for them, to enter into the agreement. Yeah. And speaking of that long history of, of conflict and violence, um, the agreement made a point of referencing that, confronting the past by acknowledging uh, you know, the suffering of, of thousands of victims, yes. countless victims. Why was that an important provision to, to include? Uh, it could not have been agreed to without a recognition of the reality of what had transpired. But it was also extremely controversial. We included in the agreement a provision creating a process for the possible early release of prisoners who had been imprisoned for violent acts, murder, bombing, attempted killing. Both sides insisted on that. You have to understand that not just in Northern Ireland, but everywhere, the capacity of human beings to rationalize their actions is virtually unlimited. And those men, and they were mostly men, who committed brutal, vicious crimes, didn't think of themselves as murderers. They thought of themselves as patriots. I can't tell you how many times people on both sides compared themselves to George Washington's army at Valley Forge. And it was, it was impossible for some of the parties on both sides to enter into an agreement without a recognition of the past and a vehicle for at least consideration of early release. Ironically, that turned out to be necessary to get the agreement, but it turned out to be the most difficult part of the agreement because for the thousands of people on both sides who had lost family members or who still had living with them daily reminders of the violence by a family member who'd been permanently crippled or maimed, 
that was impossible for them to accept. And so it was an element that was both necessary to get the agreement, but complicated gaining approval of the agreement because of those provisions. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm John Rogan. Former Senator George Mitchell is talking about his time chairing the peace talks in Northern Ireland that resulted in the Good Friday Agreement. 2018 marks the 20th anniversary of the agreement. This interview was part of a Fordham Law School event marking the milestone. Amid the anniversary celebrations, the government that the agreement created is teetering. The coalition that held it together collapsed in January of 2017, paralyzing the legislature and key government institutions since then. Brexit is also a cause for concern. It's still unclear how the U.K. can leave the European Union without erecting a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There are fears that such a border would feed tensions in the region. Senator Mitchell talked about his expectations for the agreement when it was reached and reflected on the current challenges it faces. We started this discussion by talking about what your expectations were on April 2nd of 1998. Fast forward a little bit more than a week to April 10th, April 11th of 1998. What were your expectations for, um, for this agreement in the coming years, coming decades, and how do those expectations match up to uh, where we are today? On the day that I announced the agreement, I described it as an historic achievement, which it was. But I also said on that day that by itself, the Good Friday Agreement did not guarantee peace or political stability or genuine reconciliation. It merely made them possible. And I said that there would have to be in the future equally difficult decisions taken by leaders of the future. That was clear by definition. In the agreement, we created entities to deal with issues that we couldn't resolve, policing in Northern Ireland, the justice system, and others. So it was, by its own terms, not a final resolution of every issue. It was a political compromise, the best that could be achieved at that time, enabling peace to gain a foothold. But it didn't guarantee it, and it it, I knew and said that there would be many future difficult days ahead, many tough decisions that had to be made. There were future talks at St. Andrews that were critical, at Hillsborough, and so it's ongoing and it continues to this day. Yeah, well, speaking of some of those challenges that are occurring right as the anniversary happens, really, you're talking about Brexit and the, the possibility of a hard border, and then Unfortunately, uh, you know, the breakdown of, of the self-government, um, you know, at, at Stormont, um, I know you've voiced some concerns about uh, those two issues. Yes. Uh, what are those concerns and, and what do you think that could mean for, for government in Northern Ireland? Well, peace is never guaranteed in any society and certainly not in one with a long history of violence as Northern Ireland. And so there has to be a conscious and active ongoing recognition of the threat to peace and strong leadership to prevent violence from returning and gaining its foothold. And I hope that the current leaders of Northern Ireland will demonstrate the same courage and vision that their predecessors did in 1998. I, I've said many times that books have been written documentaries have been made, 
giving credit to all of the people who participated in putting this together. But the real heroes were the people and the political leaders of Northern Ireland. It's fashionable in our society in the United States and most democracies these days to ridicule, to demean, to insult political leaders, and certainly much of it is deserved. But the fact is that in history, and in particular the history of Northern Ireland, in 1998, a group of political leaders who had spent their entire lives in conflict, some of them had been shot at, some had been shot, some had committed murders, committed other violent acts. They spent their lives in conflict, and yet they had the courage and the vision to come together at a crucial moment in the history of their society to bring an end to that conflict and to give peace a chance. And we don't pay enough recognition or tribute to the leaders who do that. We concentrate on the problems and the failings and the difficulties that leaders have in democratic societies. But these men and women in Northern Ireland, all of whom I've come to know, all of whom I greatly admire and respect, showed the world that it can happen, that peace can come to even ancient conflicts. We talked about the Stein Award uh, at the beginning. Um, and in the acceptance speech you gave, you, you outlined uh, five lessons that you had learned that might be applicable to conflicts in other places. And those lessons were recognizing that there's no such thing as a conflict that can't be ended, uh, the importance of not yielding to violence, willingness to compromise, uh, recognizing the importance of implementing agreements, and fifth, the importance of emphasizing people's basic needs and hope over despair. What are your reflections on, on those lessons uh, 20 years later? And is there anything you'd add or, or change? The Northern Ireland of today is unrecognizable as compared to the Northern Ireland when I first went there. There was widespread fear, widespread anxiety, still widespread violence even though there were nominal ceasefires. The streets were filled with uh, military patrols, armored cars. When I used to go to the airport, I had to leave two or three hours early because roadblocks were common and random. A roadblock could be thrown up at any minute on any street, so you never knew when you were going somewhere if it's going to take you 15 minutes or two hours. And the mistrust was total, total mistrust. And it persisted for a long time. I spent five years in Northern Ireland, coming and going. And over that span of years, I chaired three separate sets of negotiations. And not once ever, never, did I have a meeting in which all of the parties were in the same room at the same time. We never had a meeting in which the 10 parties and the two governments were together. Someone was always walking out. Someone was evicted. Some came back. Some didn't come back. It was like a revolving door. Uh, I learned early on that a staple of Northern Ireland politics is a dramatic walkout. Uh, a political leader stands up, 
hurls insults and invective at the other side, dramatically then throws his papers down on the table and walks out of the room before the other guy can respond. In fact, I was well aware of that by the time negotiations began because I'd already been there for nearly a couple of years. And that led me to make one of the most stupid statements I've ever made in my life, and I have made many, many stupid statements. I wanted to impress upon them that they would have a chance to have their say. I knew that they usually spoke to an empty chair or another empty side, and so I said to them, I'm a product of the U.S. Senate. I, ser I served as Senate Majority Leader for six years, and so I've listened to 16-hour speeches, to 12-hour speeches, to many eight-hour speeches. There's nothing you guys can say that can deter me, so I'm telling you now, no one will ever claim that he didn't have a chance to speak his piece, and if they won't listen to you, I'll listen to you. Sounded good. But two years later, as I sat there and listened to hour after hour after hour of the same points being made by the same people, I regretted making that statement, although it was well-intentioned, and it probably in some small measure contributed to finally getting them into uh, a format and a, an approach that required not just talking but also listening. Um, and as you look back, you know, in the, the course of your career, um, how do you view your work in, in Northern Ireland? I'm very proud of it. Uh, it was for me a labor of love and uh, personally it changed my life. My father was uh, the orphan son of Irish immigrants, but he never knew his parents. Uh, his father died, his mother couldn't care for the children, so uh, he was raised in an orphanage and uh, he was adopted after several years by an elderly childless couple who were not Irish. My mother was an immigrant from Lebanon. Uh, she could not read or write. My parents had no education. My father worked as a janitor at the local school. My mother worked nights in a local textile mill. So I grew up in very poor circumstances, uh, and my father uh, had no awareness of his Irish heritage. I never heard him say the word. Uh, although he knew about his background. So when President Clinton asked me to go to Northern Ireland, uh, I had no sense of Irish heritage and I really didn't know much about the history there. But after five years of uh, chairing various negotiations, and later I served 10 years as the Chancellor of Queen's University of Northern Ireland, uh, I came to understand it better. And so for me, uh, the experience filled an inner void that I didn't even know existed before then. And while I am an American, very proud of it, always will be, a very large part of my heart and of my emotions will forever be in Ireland, and in particular with the people of Northern Ireland. They're... Uh, they're intelligent, productive, outgoing. They are 
prone to uh, dispute. Some, someone once said that, uh, one of the uh, delegates said to me on the first day of the talks, he said, Senator, if you are to be of any use to us, there's one thing about the people of Northern Ireland you must understand. I said, what is it? He said, we in Northern Ireland would drive 100 miles out of our way to receive an insult. And uh, he was right, but nobody's perfect. And they're great people, and I'm, I feel very good about having had some role in bringing peace and hopefully stability and eventually reconciliation to Northern Ireland. Well, Senator Mitchell, thanks so much. This has Thank been you. fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. About a week after we spoke, Senator Mitchell traveled to Belfast for programs marking the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. At one of the events, he and former President Clinton received the Freedom of the City of Belfast for their work on the peace process. Nearly 50 years earlier, on January 30th of 1972, the conflict that the Good Friday Agreement quelled was ratcheting up as news spread that soldiers had shot 28 unarmed protesters on the streets of Derry, 70 miles northwest of Belfast. That day became known as Bloody Sunday, and decades of conflict followed it. Many, including one Irish rock band, lamented the tragedy and the emerging cycle of violence. Resolution was far off then, but leaders from both sides showed that the cycle could be broken when they came together in 1998 and found common ground to make a better society. This has been Fordham Conversations. I'm John Rogan.